The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And that means that I have the solemn obligation to make sure that every show in the series is relevant and applicable and as timely today as it will be next week or next month or even next year. And so that is why this is not a show about current events. Current events, you are equipped to find out more than you can possibly want with a few moments on the computer and doing some search. But what we do together on this show is understand the timeless truths and the permanent principles behind today's headlines. And so I am preparing this show for you a day or two after the 12 boys and their coach were saved, rescued from a treacherous flooded cave in northern Thailand. Now, you all know the story. I'm sure you've all followed it. I'm sure that for many of you, your hearts rose when there was good news, sank when there was bad. And, um, and so there it is. In the summer of 2018, the attention of all of America was focused on 12 young boys, members of a youth soccer team, and their 25-year-old coach, who inexplicably led them into this cave, which was marked with warning signs, do not enter during the flooding season from June through uh, October, I think. But uh, anyway, it was um, <laughs> well into June, late June, when they went in, and indeed the rain came pouring down, trapping them in the cave for a couple of weeks. And it was then that some British divers managed to uh, track them through the cave. They had to make several attempts. And after that, uh, a huge international effort to save the boys was launched. And uh, like I'm sure most of you, I, I was thrilled to open the paper one morning and discover that the 12th boy had been brought out along with a coach and uh, with the exception of one Thai Navy SEAL diver who died of asphyxiation in the cave, uh, everybody else came out. So one death of a skilled and dedicated professional. Now, let's try and analyze this a little bit. And I, I beseech you, Please, 
do not get upset because I sound heartless. I'm not. I was as happy as could be when they were rescued. I shuddered with dread in that period during which they were discovered and nobody seemed to know quite how to get them out. But now that they are safely out, a dispassionate and non-emotional analysis is fine. It's a good thing. It's useful because what we're looking at is how the world, yes, that's right, really works. Let's talk a little about uh, what the rescue entailed. And again, yes, I know a human life is of, of limitless worth and whatever it takes is worthwhile. I'm with you on all of that, of course. And I, I am giving all these caveats because I know that we all have been so indoctrinated over the last 50 years to substitute feeling for facts, to substitute feelings for ideas, that it is almost impossible for you not to be listening to me and saying to yourself, he sounds very unfeeling. Well, that's what an analysis is all about. An analysis is an analysis. It's done with a head and not with a heart. So what did this rescue take? Well, it took the life of one diver. Um, it took the work over a period of about a week of 100 divers. And this was a hugely problematic rescue. Uh, we're talking about a long, winding cave, parts of it flooded, and this thing moves in three dimensions, right? It goes up and down, it goes side to side. So it's, uh, it's, it, it gets narrow, it gets wider. It's, it's a hugely formidable task. So don't be surprised when I tell you 100 divers were on the job. 900 police officers were there, 900 of them. A total of 10,000 people were involved in the rescue. The uh, canteen and catering facilities dished out 5,000 meals a day during the period of the rescue. Let's just give you an idea of how many people were involved. What were they all doing? Uh, some were bringing materials, some were filling air tanks, some were pumping water, some, some were doing laundry of the, of the rescuers every day. I mean, the, just, there was a lot going on. Uh, you know how big uh, a scuba air tank is, right? So there were 500 of them used because uh, tanks were placed every 75 feet so that they could replace used-up ones uh, all the way through this long, winding cave. And, um, yeah, 500 air tanks. Uh, pumping. Huge pumping systems were brought in and operated uh, to pump out, uh, well, the number means nothing, right? I'm going to tell you the number, a billion liters of water uh, divided by approximately four to get gallons. And it's, you know, hundreds of millions of gallons of water were pumped out in order to try and lower the water level just a little bit in the cave, which they did. 
uh, seven police ambulances were there all the time. Ten police helicopters and 140 other vehicles. Why did they need ten? Who knows, right? I don't know, but, but that's what it took. That's what was going on there. How much did this all cost? I've not heard any estimate yet, but figure it out for yourself. You know, 10,000 people involved, 900 police officers, 100 um, skilled divers, British, Belgium, Thai. Uh, you know, everyone, everyone has to be paid. Equipment has to be paid for. And this went on and on. Uh, they also attempted some drilling to try and drill down from the mountain down into the cave. Did not work. Uh, all of these things. How much did it cost? I, I have no idea, but a, a lot of money, right? Okay, and we're all happy. The result, thank God, was, was good. The boys all came out in good health. The coach came out, and everybody is fine. Everyone's happy. It's a triumph for Thailand. The Thai government is, is uh, deriving much goodwill from it all. Everybody's happy, and it's good, and I am too. But here is my point. What I want to do is let this amazing rescue serve as evidence for something that I have warned you about from time to time in the past. But it's difficult to fully believe that what I describe is true. What I've described and what I've warned you about from time to time in the past is the extent to which emotions drive us. It shouldn't be that way. And it's part of the decay of Western civilization over the last 50 or 60 years that has us as such an emotional people. By the way, I think it's fine to be emotional with your family and with your uh, loved ones. That's great. But for policy decisions to be made, for business decisions to be made emotionally, right? uh, and you could think of, of dozens of political decisions of the last year or two or three or five or seven or nine uh, that have been made entirely on emotional basis. The, uh, the Obama Medical Care, the Affordable Care Act, was to, the appeal was totally emotional, entirely. The removal of Confederate statues, entirely emotional. It's not a good thing to raise your children, to make child-raising decisions emotionally. Not a good thing to make your business decisions emotionally, no. This is not a good thing, but we all do it, and here is the problem. We don't even know that we're doing it. And so if we can use the Thailand cave rescue as a means of proving to ourselves just how emotional we've become and to what an extent our decisions are tainted by emotions that overrule our intellects, if we can actually realize and come to believe that, yes, tragically, mistakenly, many times we allow our heart to overrule our head, 
if we can come away from this show today and you will say, thank you, Rabbi Lappin, I now understand that I've got to be doubly careful every time I have to make a decision. Doubly careful, because I've now understood that my natural, instinctive, go-to position is emotional. And only if I'm very lucky do I actually get to an intellectual evaluation as well. And so, yes, huge, incalculable sums of money, one life lost, huge amounts of material, 10,000 people, 900 policemen. Uh, I mean, this was a huge effort. It took an enormous amount to make that happen. And the result was saving 12 boys and their teacher and their foot, uh, their soccer coach. Fantastic. You know, what a tribute it is to human beings that were willing to do that, to save those lives. But just one moment. Are we really willing to do that whenever it's time to save 12 boys' lives? I think not. And I can feel a little shudder of fear going through you as you think of the implications of what I've just said. But there again, there you go. That's just emotional. Let's see what happens when we take a really good look at it. Take a look at the website, www.rabbidaniellappin.com. It's a great place to ask us questions. It's a great place to take a look at the comments and our response to the comments of our weekly thought tool, our weekly Susan's musings, our weekly Ask the Rabbi. All of that is at rabbidaniellappin.com. And also there is a resource called the Income abundance set. It is exactly what it sounds like. Read about it at rabbidaniellappin.com. Back with you in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of How the World Really Works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Okay, everybody, let's continue, shall we? So, so there we are, uh, huge numbers of people, material, huge sums of money to rescue the 12 boys of the soccer team in northern Thailand. Not only did it include all those things I was telling you about, you know, 10,000 people involved, serving 5,000 meals every day, and um, uh, this, this whole adventure, this thing began June 23rd of 2018, uh, right at the beginning of the summer, and 10 days later they were found um, huddled on a ledge in the cave, 
you're talking about two and a half miles underground, uh, seasoned adult SEAL personnel would take as long as five hours to traverse that whole distance. And of course, air tanks don't last for five hours, so they had to place a reserve tanks all over the place along the route. I mean, you can see this was a very, very big operation. Not only that, but Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, got involved and uh, took his design teams off work they had been doing. And uh, he and they worked on developing a child-sized submarine, which he then took to Thailand and personally tried out in the cave. Turned out that uh, for reasons I'm not sure of, it, it wasn't needed or wasn't usable, whatever it was, it, it didn't play any role. But, uh, but he did do that. Now, those of you with substantial assets invested in Tesla shares, happy to hear about this? Or would you rather that Elon Musk would have stayed in Fremont, California, focused on getting the assembly line for the Tesla 3 up to speed? Which would you rather have had Elon Musk do? Anyway, he's a free agent. He can do whatever he likes. But I mention that just apropos of a show I did a few months ago where I um, said that I did not believe that Tesla as an investment was long for this world. I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was a long-term viable company. And uh, anyway, for better or for worse, and oh, I actually I wrote about it in a thought tool as well. If you search for Tesla on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, you will see the article. It's a short article, but it makes all the points pretty strongly and compares Tesla to General Motors and Ford and, um, and then mentions the fact that, Tes that Elon Musk's focus is not on the car. He's got a company boring tunnels under Los Angeles. He's got companies building spaceships, and now he built a submarine. Interesting guy, no question about it, but uh, focused on Tesla? I don't think so. So there we have the situation, and uh, all of this going on because of these 12 voices. Okay, so then I said, is this what we as Americans believe to be the value of 12 young boys' lives? Are we really willing to go to these lengths? I mean, come on. If you would have been asked to make a contribution of $10 while this was going on to help uh, save the boys, and assuming for the moment that there was no racket, it was a genuine thing, it really, your contribution really would have gone, would you have hesitated for a moment? I don't think so. I know I wouldn't have. Of course I would have. Because we were swept up in the drama of these boys stuck in the cave and... Uh, Hundreds and even, as it turned out, thousands of people working on getting them out. And all they need is $10 from me. Absolutely. Not even a question. So is this what America is willing to do to save 12 boys' lives? And I finished off the last segment by saying, I don't think so. What I would recommend you do 
because I was shocked when I did it, and I'm not even sure you'll believe me when I tell you. I'd like to think I have some credibility and that my veracity is beyond question, but um, what I did is I used the Google search engine to search mother's boyfriend kills, mother's boyfriend murders, child killed by mother's boyfriend. Those are some of the search terms I used. And how many children did I come up with who had been killed by the boyfriend of the mother just in 2018, the first half of 2018? Not 12, but over 30. And I didn't, and that's when I stopped. I stopped reading. And so what's going on here? Well, um, it's, it's very simple. What happened is that as part of the uh, leftist progressive project of diminishing the significance of the traditional family, um, news organizations led by the New York Times decided that from now onwards, and this is going back a few years already, they would regard as a normal family unit a mother and boyfriend. It doesn't have to be the father. There doesn't have to be any formal adoption. We're going to call that a family. And, and that's what they did. And one of the things they did was dramatically change the statistics for, quote, family abuse. Children who are abused in their own families. But it's never in their own families. It's always mother's boyfriend. Now, when you think about it, um, you know, a guy wants to have sex with a woman. Turns out she's a single mom. And whenever he wants to do something, she's busy. There's a child crying or a child calling. And it's, it's probably more than one. And to begin with, it's very possible that these guys are, shall we say, guys with non-fully developed self-discipline areas of their beings, their ability to postpone gratification, probably not super well developed, and uh, they let loose their rage on this child that is distracting the woman from them. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I can't put it any more plainly than that. That's what happens. And that's why it was without any effort at all that I was able to identify in the first six months of 2018, more than 30 young children killed by mom's boyfriend. Now, if we really cared about the lives of young children, we could do something about that, couldn't we? We could stop calling that a family. We could start recognizing those to be high-risk situations. And instead of uh, Child Protective Services worrying about perfectly normal functional children who are being let play in the park without their mother holding them on a leash, and instead of that we let Child Protective Services put on a tight leash mothers with boyfriends, live-in boyfriends, I dare say that uh, quite a number of children's lives could be saved. But you see, I don't think we really are uniformly concerned about the lives of children. I really don't. 
I think it's only when our emotions get plugged in that all of a sudden it's the most important thing. It's front page of the newspaper, day after day after day. I also did a quick search to see how many children are killed in drive-by shootings. Now, I just decided to look at Los Angeles, Chicago, and Detroit. I didn't even look at other cities. But I could have added a bunch of other cities as well that are notorious for this kind of violence. And again, right, my, uh, my search ability was overwhelmed. Never mind 12 children shot in the first few months of 2018. Many more than that. Can we do something about that? Well, yes. And no, I don't think the answer is more restrictions on firearms. But I do think it involves a very frank and open discussion about violent crime in America, one that we're obviously not willing to have yet. And so, um, yeah, I don't think we are that concerned about the lives of children. How about traffic accidents? Children being allowed to play near busy streets with traffic without proper attention. Right? Another way that lives of children could be saved. But no. The children in the cave of Thailand. Wow. Everybody feels so good. The 12 children were saved. And so do I. It's great. I'm very happy. I, were, I, would have, I would have felt a pang of sadness had that not worked. But what about, what about the children that are killed by Palestinian terrorists who um, invade into Israel and attack cars, families, outposts? What about those children? Happens all the time. Nobody cares about those children. And so this is not by any means a uniform caring about children. It is a specific case in which our emotions were plugged in. Everything changed. Once it becomes personalized and I see pictures and stories and now I'm emotionally involved, it changes everything. Now, those are the children I care about. Not that I care about children in general. I don't. In the abstract, I'd, oh, yeah, I care about children. Yeah. But would I get that invested and that involved? Would anybody? Would the country as a whole? No. It's not hard to find the rate at which children's lives are snuffed out. It's not hard to find situations of children in terrible peril. No, nobody does anything about that at all. How's about abortion? Oh, those aren't living children. That's different, right? Well, I guess it's it can be spoken about, but wait a sec. We don't talk about it. It's not being discussed. Other than to hear feckless Republicans say, oh, we hope that this new judge replacing Kennedy doesn't have any intentions of undoing Roe v. Wade. Like, why? I mean, if, if it is a moral issue, then why shouldn't it be on the table? At the very least, you know, why shouldn't the illegal mistakes of the ruling be recognized? 
and have it become a state issue. Every state can make its own ruling. That way people can be involved, and that way the intention of the founders can be respected, that laws are made not by the Supreme Court that finds dubious rights in the Constitution that are not there, but laws will be made by the legislators who are elected and paid to do just that. Of course, they would rather have the Supreme Court do it so they don't have to upset anybody, and we get that. But uh, really? So this is all because we care about children? No. It's because our emotions got involved, and that changed everything. How about the special government money that was given out to the uh, 9-11 families? families who lost loved ones at the tr World Trade Center, right? Large sums of money were given out. Would have been churlish to protest it, but protested I did at the time. Because, again, why are those people treated differently from all the other people who lost close relatives? Well, because it was 9-11. It was on the front pages of the newspaper. Everyone's emotions were involved. And so... When lawmakers wanting to feel good and win votes on the back of your wallet proposed giving money, nobody said anything because emotions were plugged in. Are you beginning to, I hope you are, I hope you're beginning to see that America is not driven by facts. It's not driven by intellectual analysis driven by emotions. It's not the head. It is the heart. It's a huge problem. And at the very least, there's value in knowing when our hearts are in charge as opposed to our heads. There's real value in knowing that our default situation is to listen to the heart. We've got to stop doing that. Don't do that. Not in your marriage, not in dealing with your children, not in deal. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a time, your anniversary, there's a time to be emotional. But to make policy decisions for your family, to make policy decisions for your business, to allow your politicians to make policy decisions for your country on the basis of emotions, it's the road to tragedy. It's a calamity in the making. Calamity? Oh, yeah, right. Because the origin of the English word calamity are the three English letters CLM and CLM are very interesting CLM are the Hebrew word if you if you write the Hebrew letter CL that make you know KLM uh, you get the Hebrew word for calumny hear that word again calumny CLM calumny calamity you get the Hebrew word for mortification and humiliation, all of these yeah, uh, horrible calamities. Yeah, right. Why? Uh, well, it turns out those three letters are the initial letters for the concept of bodily motivation, emotional motivation, and intellectual or mental or brain motivation. That's right. And when you make most of your decisions in the order of, I'm going to do what my body calls for. All right? Uh, this is uh, former governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer, with everything to, go, to live for, and the call of the body drags him to Washington, where his client, number nine, 
of a uh, prostitute who works for the Empire, I mean, the Empire VIP circle <laughs> ring or whatever. Yeah. Um, people can be pulled by bodily appetites, no question about it. Um, after that, a little bit better than that, you can be pulled by emotional appetites. And that's what we're talking about today. And then hardest of all is to be driven by mental, intellectual, by the head. And interestingly enough, if you go the other way around, MLC, you get the Hebrew word for royalty. And so it is upper class. It is high character to make decisions, to make policy, based first on the head, then the heart, then the body. It is calamitous to make decisions first on the body, then on the head, then on the heart, and only eventually, occasionally, maybe sometimes, on the head. And uh, all of that is explained in greater detail in a resource called The Gathering Storm, Decoding the Secrets of Noah, which you can actually download right away at rabbidaniellappin.com. It so happens that uh, the name of the father of Noah is spelled LMC, heart, brain, body, and the father of Mrs. Noah, Naama, Noah's wife. Odd is it not that the two people who survived on the ark each had, both had fathers by the same name in Hebrew, Lamech, L-M-C. Um, all of that explained at length at my website, www.rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, take a look at a resource called The Gathering Storm. One of my favorites. You'll love it. And uh, I'll love being back again with you in just a moment. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Here we go, back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being part of it, and thank you, those of you who've been so active in promoting it and telling other people about it and sending out uh, links to the show. Thank you very much indeed. Much appreciated. And uh, your efforts bear considerable fruit and are, are very, very evident. So I, I notice it, I'm aware of it, and I thank you. The, uh, the definitions I want to give you now are definitions for low class and high class. Uh, for a long time, we've become accustomed to believing that high class is a social status. It means you are, uh, you, you have money, uh, you're in the top 1% or whatever. Low class means you're part of the dregs of society, you're part of the deplorables, you, you don't have money, you, you live from day to day. Um, no, the true definition of high class and low class is a definition of behaviors, it is true that high-class behavior will make sure that you and certainly your children will be rich. Low-class behavior will make certain that you and your children will remain or get poor. There are people with a lot of money who are very, very low-class people. But I'll tell you one thing, that's not a long-term situation. Uh, people who, people or families 
of low class do not retain their money for very long. A generation or two at maximum, and it's gone. Dissipated, uh, wasted, finished. The, um, uh, the other way around, just as true. Uh, are there very poor people who are high-class people? You bet there are. You bet there are, absolutely. Uh, many immigrants from certain countries are high-class. By the way, I'm not talking about invaders. I'm talking about immigrants. It's a very big difference. And once again, the left plays us by emotionally painting words, by calling people who climb in through a window into your house, and you get up in the morning, and they're camped around a little fire they've built on your carpet in the living room, and they say, hi, we're immigrants, we're refugees, we need help, we're here for asylum. And if you are a, um, a, a, an ungrounded person, if, if you are a person who is susceptible to emotionalism, then you may well make a fatal pause, at which point they know they've won. But anybody grounded in reality knows that the first thing you do is take a baseball bat and get him out of your house. That's number one. You've got to restore the normal status first. Normal status is you're outside, I'm inside. And uh, then, if it's a case of you wanting help, knock on the door, and we'll talk. But you don't come in without permission. That doesn't make you an immigrant. That makes you an invader. And you can imagine, can you not, how different America would be, how differently, I should say, America would be reacting to the whole invasion problem over the years already, had the media spoke of them as invaders, not as immigrants. Because with immigrants, once again, here we go, it's emotionalism. And many, many people hear the word immigrant and say, you know, I'm an immigrant, I came here as an immigrant, or my grandparents came here as an immigrant, and the country was very welcoming and good to them. Yes, they didn't come as invaders. They came as immigrants. It's a huge difference. They got permission. They came in officially. They w didn't come in order to get. They came in order to give. They came in order to contribute. They came in order to work. They didn't come to move on to welfare roles. Not at all. And crime was certainly not part of the, uh, the behavior patterns at all. Those tended to be high-class immigrants. But invaders, different story altogether. Just imagine if the press would speak about uh, 40,000 invaders crossed the border last. There'd be outrage. There'd be indignation. But notice that the facts haven't changed, just the emotionalism. And that's something that the left does very well. It picks the right words. It controls the language for a specific emotional response and I'm telling you all of this you know not only to be aware of how the left manipulates you all know that but also to be aware that you and I we each and every one of us are also susceptible to emotional manipulation sometimes it comes from our children 
Sometimes it comes from our fellow workers. Okay, uh, a person working next to you, right? You're, you're in a department. There are four of you working together. Then, you know, there, there are hundreds of situations in business where this would be true, where, you know, shall we say four of you, and, uh, and if any one of you slacks off, the other three have to pick up because there's a certain expectation of your division or of your group. And one person says, um, so I've got to leave at 3 o'clock this afternoon instead of 5 because uh, I've got to pick up my kid Tommy from a baseball game. Or I've got to leave at 3 o'clock because I've got to take my kid Tommy to the dentist. And again, the emotional response is, oh, okay, fine. And it also may well be that a thought-out intellectual response might be, hey, you know what, this hardly ever happens. Once every, things happen every now and then, uh, you, we work together with other people, we accommodate them. But what happens if uh, the next week, on Tuesday, the person says, I have to leave at 3 o'clock today, uh, I've got to have a, a school meeting with Tommy's teacher. And the week after that, it's something else. The emotional response, hey, you know what, she's a single mother, uh, you know, I understand. The intellectual response is, this isn't any good. You know, listen to Rabbi Daniel Lappin, who says every job in America is a two-person job. It's true. It's true. I can only whisper that to you. I can't really say it out loud because I, I don't want to be utterly obliterated. But the truth, every job in America is a two-person job, meaning that that job can only be successfully dealt with by somebody who has a backup at somebody else at home to keep the home operation functioning, right? Because if work is going very badly, it impacts the home. And if normal day-to-day -day living is going very badly, if you simply are not able to do your laundry and you don't have time to take a shower and you're not eating properly, that's going to affect your work. And so this is the reason that until these enlightened times, I'm talking up till 1962, uh, corporations in America used to hire only married executives for senior positions. And not only did they ask if the executive was married before they hired, they even insisted on interviewing the spouse also because they wanted to know whether the executive would able to be able to be dedicated to the job. And so uh, emotionalism, happens all the time and we've got to understand that low class and high class are behaviors that have huge impacts low class behavior produces poverty and crime high class behavior produces tranquil wealthy successful cities what is the simplest way to define low-class behavior and high-class behavior? I told you the effect it produces. I told you what they do. But what defines these kinds of behaviors? Very simple. What I was talking about towards the end of the last segment, body, emotion, mind. Body, emotion, mind. People who are primarily driven by bodily desires, people whose motivations stem from what the body wants, mostly appetites of food and sex primarily. Uh, people who go in that avenue, that's low-class behavior, and it will have 
typical low-class consequences. Um, emotion is a sort of in the middle. You can, you can last quite a long time operating emotion. You can't last long on, on uh, responding to the call of the body. Uh, responding to the call of the, of the emotions lasts a little longer, but again, also not for a long time. Long-term durability of a person, a family, an entire culture and civilization depend on making decisions on what you do based not on what your body wants, not on what your emotions tug you towards, but on what your mind tells you. It's following the head, not the heart, not the body. Head, not the heart, not the body. That is upper-class behavior. It's high-class behavior, low-class behavior, mainly driven by the call of the body, the rest of the time by the emotions, never by the head. That's low class. Now, uh, worse than that, it's true, as I say, not only for individuals and families, you know, low class families, they're high class families. High class families may not be rich yet, but they will be. Low class families may not be poor yet, but they will be. And uh, the, uh, the cultural impacts are also very real. One of the things that leftism, that progressivism, that liberalism, that socialism produces in a culture is emotionalism. It produces a population more and more inclined to make decisions based on emotions. That's what it does. I would also mention that Judeo-Christian religion, Bible-based religions of Judaism and Christianity, and uh, you know what, I'm going to add the LDS church in here as well because the uh, effect is exactly the same. These religions produce a masculine-type society. That's, that's why they are durable. Secularism, progressivism, socialism, leftism produce a feminine society. And if you apply this to the circumstances you see with your own eyes around you, you will come to see very quickly just how utterly true is what I've just said. It's so important. It's so important. I want to repeat it one more time. Secularism, socialism, progressivism, the left always pulls a society or a group or an individual towards emotionalism and also bodyism, by the way. It pulls them in a destructive direction. If somebody is a committed secularist, then the odds are he is going to be moving in an emotional, in an emotional direction, making his decisions emotionally. And if, uh, if there's anything that I, I do get across to you during this segment, it is that I would like us all to try and absorb into our beings the idea that this can be subconscious, that we can actually believe that we are operating on such a calculated, analytical, precise way, and yet all we're doing is reacting emotionally. It's quite hard to know yourself well enough to be able to say, you know what, yes, I, I'm, I'm reacting emotionally. I've got to calm down. I've got to get the emotional part out of me and then not make any decision until I've done that. It is very, 
very difficult to be aware that you are being emotionally manipulated because you think you've made a sane, rational, analytical decision, and it just isn't so. Okay. All right. So um, a whole lot more when we come back. Uh, I have to tell you about uh, why the black abortion rate, the abortion rate among African Americans is so much higher than among all other Americans. What's that all about? Uh, I saw that in a Wall Street Journal article, and on the off chance you're not aware of it, I do need to tell you about it, because again, it's pure emotionalism. And um, I also have to tell you about, uh, and I I don't usually talk about this kind of thing, but I, I do have to. I have to tell you about Russia, and uh, I have to try and help you rid yourself of your emotional response to Russia. All right, calm down. Russia is not only not the problem, it's not even a problem. And President Trump is 100% correct on this. Um, All of that just as soon as we come back. But uh, first of all, how about... uh, if I mention that I'm going to be doing another conference call where I take your questions. Well, I, the, the way the conference call works is it's, a, it's about an hour. I take the first uh, 10 minutes discussing, and what I'm going to be discussing is uh, uh, sex and money or marriage and money, how male-female relationships are inseparable from money. I'm going to be talking about that. And then after I've finished my opening remarks on that, I will take questions. And um, for the most part, I'd like questions at least peripherally connected with that topic. But I'll I'll probably also take questions on other areas as well, depending on whether they fit the format of what we're talking about. So go ahead and get a pen ready so you can uh, take down notes of the details. It's going to be Thursday evening, uh, July the 19th, 2018. Now, I know full well that uh, there are many, many people who don't get to the show uh, for weeks and sometimes months after it actually posts and goes live. So uh, apologies to you. However, if you are on our Thought Tool mailing list, well, then you're going to get a little notification in uh, you know 24 hours ahead of the uh, the podcast so you can be reminded of it so uh, that would be one reason to make sure that you are in fact uh, on that list but uh, meanwhile if you are listening to this and uh, you are listening to it uh, prior to Thursday night July 19 in the summer of 2018 uh, then please make a note that on Thursday night I'm doing a, a question conference call What happens is you dial in, uh, I speak for 10 minutes, and then uh, we go to questions. And uh, and the the timing, first of all, is this – it's Thursday night, the the 19th of July, and it is at uh, 6 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Mountain time, 8 p.m. Central, and 9 p.m. East Coast. Okay, so if you're in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Las Vegas, it's going to be at uh, 6 p.m. this uh, Thursday night, the 19th. And if you are in uh, uh, Denver, uh, it's going to be at, uh, eight, uh, at uh, excuse me, at uh, 7 p.m. And if you're in uh, Chicago, it's going to be at 8 p.m. And if you're in 
New York or Sarasota, Florida. It's going to be at 9 p.m. Okay, how do you join the show? Take down the phone number. It's easy. You dial 641-715-0856. 641-715-0856. And uh, then you enter the, um, the, the code to get in, okay, which is 787-364. And... Um, the uh, the the best news here of all is that because we have so many people listening to the show from other countries, uh, you can join in from other countries as well. Now, here's the thing. I will give out the dial-in codes for some of the countries where we have a lot of listeners. Canada, um, United Kingdom, um, a number of European countries, Australia, uh, Ghana, Nigeria, Zimbabwe few other countries however here's an, a much easier way if you go and you can again make a, a note of this website uh, www.freeconferencecallhd like high density freeconferencecallhd okay and um, there you will see something called a VoIP dialer right there on the homepage VOIP and that lets you dial in on the internet with your with your uh, your uh, smartphone or your computer or whatever you want to do so even if you are lo- wherever you are located anywhere in the world you, all you need is internet access and you don't even have to use a telephone line just use your internet and you can join the conference call that way as well it's uh, it's awfully convenient and very nice indeed the uh, Web, my website, again, to make sure you're on the mailing list, make sure you get a reminder for the conference call, is go to rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, uh, take a look at a resource. You can download it right away. It's called The Gathering Storm. It's a two-hour audio teaching program that uh, I've prepared, and uh, one of the things it does is it elaborates upon this idea of motivating ourselves by body emotions or mind or the high class way primarily mind then emotions and then body after that right not saying not saying you should never indulge bodily appetites i'm not saying that saying it's not a good thing to make life impacting decisions based on that that's all we're saying so uh, uh, take a look at that and we'll be back in just a moment with more information and fun on the rabbi daniel lappin show there's still more to come from rabbi daniel lappin on demand on the blaze radio network bill o'reilly on the glenn beck program kennedy was a really good man i had uh, an opportunity to talk with him in depth one time we were stranded at an airport um and uh hang on just a second hang on just a second i just want everybody just to take a moment to think what a pleasure or a nightmare that would be depending on your point of view (laughs) being stranded in an airport with bill o'reilly all right go ahead yeah i mean some people went screaming from the terminal (laughs) i would imagine yes bill o'reilly on the glenn beck program with stories in the areas of family friendship faith and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, only on the Blaze Radio Network, on demand.
Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, revealing how the world really works. And uh, one way the world really works, of course, is that had there been no international attention on the 12 young boys in the soccer team in Thailand um, stuck in the cave, had there been no attention, had the world remained utterly oblivious of it, had it not made the news, had no reporters traveled there from all around the world, had uh, foreign rescue workers, foreign divers not shown up, if this just remained a village matter, which uh, through the local constabulary uh, would have sort of percolated up to lower levels of government, uh, would the boys have been rescued? My response to that is probably not. Yes, I know that that's a harsh judgment um, on a non-Western country, um, but, but I think it's a true one. Um, this, this is no small matter, and uh, in a country like Thailand where the loss of 12 young lives is, it happens all the time, it really does. Even in the United States, as I pointed out, it's really not hard to show how our willingness to tolerate incredible familial dysfunction by calling things families that are not families, by not in any way pointing a finger of social sanction at a single mom who lets a, another guy, her boyfriend, move in and take control of her frail and fragile household. By not pointing a finger of social sanction at that and saying, as a society that really does care about children, we won't allow that. We don't do that. So even in America, as I showed you, it's really not hard to find examples of the loss of 12 young lives, maybe not all in one location, but does that really change the facts? Of course not. And so it was, of course, the focusing of emotional attention and putting Thailand at the center of the world stage that uh, made the government realize that they had no option. They absolutely had to go ahead and, and do whatever they could to make this rescue happen, which they did, and credit to them. And I'm very happy it all worked out, obviously. But uh, Again, just to, to be able to analyze it dispassionately with no emotional overtones, would it have happened without? No. And if it was just a tiny little note on the bottom of the third page of your paper, had it just been mentioned in passing on the television news with no photographs and only mentioned once, would there have been a, a huge emotional response in the hearts and minds of America? No, of course not. It's just that uh, media serves to play the emotions. And this isn't because, you know, media is vile and they have this carefully calibrated, deep and dark uh, conspiracy to distort the minds of Americans. No, it's what liberal institutions, liberal people, liberal organizations do. Emotions become more important than anything else. The media is an extremely liberal institution in America, whether it's entertainment or whether it is uh, uh, news. It's all one and the same today. And, and by the way, I don't have to even explain to you, I have such a high regard for you, my prestigious and prominent audience. I know 
that I don't have to explain to you why entertainment by its nature has to be emotional. Right? Reading a book, now that's intellectual. But uh, watching a video, watching a, uh, watching a, uh, a movie or a television program, um, all of that in a comedy show, all of that, pure emotionalism. And again, not to say it has no role. I'm just saying let's be aware of it. Let's really, really be aware of it. And so uh, um, certainly that is exactly what happens. We get emotionally impacted without always being aware that it's happening. The, uh, bla the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, emotional or intellectual? Not even a question, perfectly obvious. Uh, the um, pro-abortion movement, now that's a complicated one. Um, male support for it, and as you know, in the early years, uh, the support for it was heavily masculine, heavily male, was bodily. I mean, yeah. You know, I, I would like to be able to engage in sex anytime, anywhere, with anyone with absolutely no worry about consequences, that's all. And, and abortion is just such a beautiful guarantee of that desire and of that drive. But uh, Jason Riley, fascinating writer, every now and then he does a piece for the Wall Street Journal, and I try to never miss it when he does. Uh, the latest one that uh, appeared um, a... Uh, in the last week or two or three is called let's talk about the black abortion rate let's talk about the black abortion rate okay let's talk about it i thought the black abortion rate was very low well yes that's true but uh, that information is somewhat out of date it is true that uh, up until and you know my cutoff date of 62 up until 1962 the uh, rate of black abortions was way below that of uh, white abortions in America. African Americans did not want to do this. They wouldn't do it. They didn't do it. It was low. Then, uh, by 1973, that was when the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade. Uh, at that point, blacks were still considerably less likely than whites to support abortion. So now we're not even talking about doing it, but even just political support for it. Uh, blacks were not nearly as, su as supportive of Roe v. Wade as whites were. Uh, there were even you know, civil rights icons of the day. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Whitney Young, those people, they denounced abortion as a, a horrible assault on black people. And they discouraged it. Even, and I say even because this is a very low-class man, even Jesse Jackson, at that time, still 1973, called abortion murder. And again, spoke about how bad it was for, for black people. Anyways, uh, 1962 has gone, 73 has gone, and now the figures are very different. So first of all, Black civil rights organizations today are inseparable from every other liberal group. There's nothing particularly black about them in the same way there's nothing particularly Jewish about Jewish left-wing organizations, nothing Jewish about them. Basically, they, they constitute the left wing of the Democratic Party, whether they are blacks or Jews or anybody else. And so uh, support for Planned Parenthood, big deal among African Americans. A Pew Research Center 
showed that uh, 58% of whites um, say that abortion should be legal in all circumstances. It's m more than 50% of whites. Um, the figure is higher for blacks, okay, 62%. So um, why have black attitudes towards abortion changed to make them so much not only equal to white pro-abortion sentiment, much more, much more strongly what's going on. So um, the, the reality is that abortions have been afflicting the black population far more than the white population, which was not true up until Roe v. Wade. It didn't happen. Abortions happened, obviously. They, they did. But much less among blacks than among whites. So now in New York City, where we actually have records available, the, this, these are facts. These are not emotions. These are facts. Uh, every year, thousands more black babies are aborted than are born alive. The abortion rates among black mothers three times higher than white mothers. This is weird. What's going on? And New York City Health um, gave, gave figures that uh, between, uh, in a period of, I think, 24 months, black mothers terminated 136,426 pregnancies and gave birth to 118,127 babies. So in other words, 136,000 abortions, 118,000 babies. Right, so much fewer babies born than were aborted. Uh, but among whites, uh, births far surpassed abortions. So it's, it's upside down. Nationally, it's, it's, it's an equally problematic story. And again, I'm, I'm just curious as to why this is. Black women terminate pregnancies at far higher rates than other women. 36% uh, of all abortions performed a year ago 36% of all abortions were performed on black women who are only 13% of the female population. So 13% of the people had 36% of the abortions. It's weird. Like, this, isn't this worth noting and asking what's going on? What is happening? So uh, there are all kinds of theories people have. Th I, I think I'm going to just tell you the, the, the true answer, my, my answer, which I think is the true answer. Uh, the answer is very simple, and that is that, uh, the, that liberalism, leftism, progressivism has destroyed the black family. If there is one thing that has changed hugely between 1962 and 2018, it's the shattering of marriage among African-Americans. Um, there are proportionately more black single men than white single men. I mean, obviously, they're more white in actual number, but a far, far higher proportion of blacks, of black men, stay single than white men. And I think everybody understands uh, just what liberalism did, what the... Uh, everything that progressivism has, has done and why it impacted the black family so badly. Once the uh, idea of family is no longer prevalent, then abortion makes perfect sense. And so I believe that that is the explanation. 
Uh, marriage is at a huge crisis point. The overwhelming majority of black babies born are born to single moms. That's I didn't just say more than half. I said a big majority. That is really, really worrisome because we all know that the most reliable predictor of problems with the law and with poverty is being born to a single mom. It's a huge problem. And I've told you in the past something that the late, great Chuck Colson uh, of Richard Nixon memory and who started something called Prison Ministry um, we, sit, we were sitting and talking in D.C. in a restaurant having lunch one day, and he told me uh, that the uh, that prison ministries um, goes into the uh, in penitentiaries and incarceration centers around the country at times of Mother's Day, and they help uh, prisoners send cards to their mothers. They only tried one year to do it for Father's Day, and it didn't work because literally, like, you know, a tiny proportion, a handful of prisoners knew who their fathers were. They were just, you know, they didn't know who they were, the fathers were, they weren't in touch with them. This is a very serious problem. And uh, one of the consequences of no family is abortion. Sure, that makes perfect sense. So I don't think you have to dig any further to find an explanation for that. I said that I also wanted to tell you about Russia. So here's the thing. Look, um, when uh, when uh, President Obama was caught on an open mic um, telling the Russians that after the election I'll have more flexibility, right? This was okay, right? He obviously didn't think Russia was a problem. He was saying, I'll accommodate you. I'll be able to agree with things you want me to do, which I can't do now because the, my electorate won't go for it, right? That was okay then because, and you remember when Hillary Clinton went and she gave uh, the Russians uh, a big red button. It was a reset button, right? And she said, everything's in it. Ch- it's all different now. Yes. Well, wait a sec. Didn't they interfere with our elections? Uh, didn't Obama actively interfere with the Israeli elections to try and prevent Netanyahu from being elected? What, ne- what Obama did in Israel far exceeds what Russia did in November 2016. Look, Nobody is claiming that the Russians got into the voting machines and they changed numbers or they sent operatives to steal ballots. Nobody's saying that. What they're saying is that uh, the Russians may or may not have uh, taken out advertisements and and put out uh, news favoring one, and it's not clear which one they favored. Not at all clear. But anyway, didn't they do that? Sure they did that. America does it all the time. Uh, many countries involve themselves in the elections and try to influence the elections of neighboring countries or countries with which they have strategic interests one way or the other. Sure, that happens all the time. Uh, You'd have to think the American electorate are idiots in order to think that, uh, that we are so unaware of reality that a few Russian advertisements or a few Russian posters or a few Russian articles are going to change us. Come on. Uh, the whole reason that this Russian interference in the election was brought about was the left had to come up with an explanation for why Hillary lost. You, everybody knows that. And, um, and so the reality of Russia oh, – by the way, I listened to – in preparation for the show, I listened to uh, MSNBC. I wanted to hear what they were making of uh, President Trump and his meeting with President Putin – 
And they said repeatedly, um, I, I should have tried to tape the, uh, the, 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 the audio for you. They said repeatedly, uh, Russia is the most serious a geopolitical adversary America has. They said that three times. It's not true, my friends. China is. There's no question about it. Uh, NATO, Trump is absolutely right. People say, oh, NATO has preserved security for 70 years. It's so important. Um, look, things change. And when Russia, when the Soviet Union did actually constitute a very serious threat to the world, when the Soviet Union was in aggressive mode, when the Soviet Union was building up Cuba and putting missiles there, when the Soviet Union was taking over Africa, when the Soviet Union was destabilizing parts of Asia, at that point, what did you hear from the American left? What did you hear from progressives? Everything is fine. They wouldn't even condemn Stalin in the 50s. Back then, everything Russia did was fine. America was the bad people. We were the people destabilizing the world. So progressives had it wrong then. And you know what? They got it wrong now as well, because now Russia isn't the threat. Crimea, good luck to them. Let them have it. If, um, if anybody tried to uh, prevent our access to the Panama Canal, I can assure you that in no time at all we would take, it over, we'd take over that part of Panama again. The canal zone for years was part of America. Uh, we did give it back to Panama, but we wouldn't hesitate to take it back again. Just think for a moment if there was the slightest threat to shipping, uh, think what President Trump would do. Well, that's what Putin did with Crimea, and uh, good luck to it. The idea that America should impose sanctions or worse because Russia took back Crimea, why is that an American problem? Now, if Russia would show any kind of uh, interests on Germany or on Poland or any of the traditional um, World War II and post-World War II uh, political order problems, no, that would be different. But that's not evident. Right now, NATO is somewhat obsolete. And I'm saying, fine, keep it. You know what? It's, it's okay. I, I always explain that when uh, and this is part of a uh, an audio program I do, the Tower of Power, when organizations, when uh, uh, when companies build huge headquarters, sell your stock. It's a bad sign. The, com the company is going down. And in my audio teaching, um, Tower of Power, um, the, uh, the, the uh, decoding the secrets of Babel, and you can see that on my website, I give lists of, of all the various uh, companies that built huge skyscrapers, headquarters, very impressive headquarters, and they then very quickly sank into oblivion. Uh, Pan Am comes to mind as, as one of them. Sears was another. It was literally the decline of these companies began when they built their headquarters in Manhattan and Chicago, respectively. Well, NATO has, has just opened and dedicated a huge, monstrous new building in Europe. If you're interested, go online. You're not going to believe this thing looks like it's out of Star Wars. It's incredible. Bad sign, right? It's a very good sign that NATO is no longer needed. But anyways, I, you know, I wouldn't say defund NATO. I'd say defund the United Nations. But uh, NATO, fine, you know, two fine, keep it going. But tell me something. Has NATO been helpful on the ground in Afghanistan? I don't think so. How about if China gets even more aggressive, Spratly Islands? 
if uh, South China Sea. That's where threats lie. Uh, China's seizure and theft of American secrets. All of these, NATO helpful there? No, that's not part of NATO's um, uh, mandate. No, they wouldn't be helpful at all. The idea that Russia constitutes our biggest geopolitical threat, this is mindlessness on the part of progressives, simply not true. When it was true, they weren't with us on that. And now that it's not true, they're obsessed with Russia. No, the real peril is China. That's perfectly obvious. And I'm not saying we have to be at war with China. No, of course not. But um, Trump's tough positions with China, extremely welcome, very overdue. Uh, what a weak, feckless person we had in the White House for eight years. This is a very refreshing change. And uh, I, I'm sure, look, there's probably some of you who, who hate and loathe the man. All I can say is ignore what he says, for heaven's sake, and focus on what he does. Ignore what he says. Stop getting worked up about tweets, for heaven's sake. I, take a look at the things he's actually done. Uh, diminishing regulation, may that continue. Um, anyway, not, not to take too much time on, on that topic, but there it is for now. I've got, to, I've got to bring us in for a landing. We are coming to the end of uh, today's show. Thank you very much indeed for being part of it. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Remember, Thursday night, July 19th of the year 2018, if you're listening to this in the next year. Uh, but in this year, right now, while I'm taping at 2018, Thursday night, July 19th, doing a one-hour conference call. It's 9 o'clock on the West Coast, excuse me, uh, 6 p.m. on the West Coast, Thursday night, July 19th, and it's 9 p.m. on the East Coast um, on Thursday night, July 19th. Here's the phone number to dial in. It is 641-715-0856. 641-715-0856. And uh, the access code is 787-364. 787-364. And you can join the conference call where I'll be doing some teaching on um, sex and money, marriage and money, male-female relationships and money for a few minutes, and then we'll be going to phone calls. So that's coming up uh, uh, July 19th. If you would like to um, have a, an email reminder of that 24 hours beforehand, no problem. Just make sure you're on the mailing list. To do that, go to rabbidaniellappin.com. Make sure you are on the Thought Tool mailing list, and uh, that way you will get a reminder. Uh, the, uh, the resource I mentioned, um, the Tower of Power, uh, for those of you interested more on this idea that uh, headquarters, when they get a little bit too big and a little bit too dramatic, watch out. That is Tower of Power. You can see it there. If you are interested in how uh, the body, heart, mind, dynamic impacts lives, both with uh, entire societies, how a society tends towards the end if it uh, makes its decisions, its policy decisions on the basis of body and emotions, not on mind, uh, you'll want to listen to uh, an audio teaching called The Gathering Storm. 
It's a two-hour teaching with a uh, study guide. All of that can be downloaded, again, at rabbidaniellappin.com. So you can read more about it at the website. Thanks, everybody. Great being together with you. Very much appreciate your participation in the site. Uh, shoot me an, um, an email at my website. There's a contact us opportunity. Love to hear from you. So, uh, And as you, many of you know, I do answer where, where quite often, actually. Um, used to be about uh, a third of the letters I answered. It's probably a bit lower than that now, but I actually do see them all. So thanks very much indeed. It's rabbidaniellappin.com. And until next week, until the next show, I am your rabbi wishing you a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. 